Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode in New Books and Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tari. For each new episode, we select an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. Today, I have the privilege and pleasure of talking to Professor Iqbal Singh Sevilla, who is an Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, about his new book, The Political Philosophy of Muhammad Iqbal, Islam and Nationalism in Colonial India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. The towering Indian Muslim poet and intellectual Muhammad Iqbal, died 1938, is among the most contested figures in the intellectual and political history of modern Islam. Heralded by some as the father of Pakistan and by others as the champion of pan-Islam, Iqbal's legacy is as keenly debated as it is celebrated and appropriated. In his fascinating new book, Professor Sevilla explores Iqbal's political and religious thought in a remarkably nuanced and dazzling fashion, bringing into question the tendency to approach Iqbal through the prism of constraining categories like nationalist, modernist, and pan-Islamic, Sevilla convincingly shows that the dynamism of Iqbal's thought lay precisely in how he traversed multiple intellectual and ideological registers. Iqbal's view of the nation did not correspond to the modern notion of nationalism, Sevilla argues. Through a carefully historicized and conceptually invigorating analysis of a range of Iqbal's writings, Sevilla brings into view the palimpsest of discursive reservoirs that animated Iqbal's thought as an intellectual and as a poet. Sevilla brilliantly examines and displays the complexity of Iqbal's project of comprehensively reimagining Islam in the conditions of colonial modernity, one that contrapuntally engaged Western philosophical traditions and the canon of Muslim intellectual traditions. Carefully researched and wonderfully written, this book will be of much interest to scholars and students of Islam, South Asia, politics and colonialism. In our conversation, we talked about the problem of nationalist historiographies in the study of Iqbal and South Asian Islam, intra-Muslim debates on the interaction of religion and nationalism in colonial India, Iqbal's agonistic relationship with modernism, his understanding of Islam and nationalism, and the political stakes of this book. Here now is my conversation with Iqbal Sevilla. Hello Iqbal, how are you? I'm good, Sherali. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for your time, Iqbal. Uh, As I was just uh, mentioning, a fascinating book, a wonderfully written book, and it really is intellectual history at its best. Uh, Very philosophically uh, informed uh, historical narrative and the way that you go through multiple uh, primary and secondary sources and bring the canvas of Iqbal's thought uh, to us, it's it's really a fascinating read and one that I learned a lot from, and I'm sure our listeners and the readers will also uh, learn much from this book. So thank you so much. Uh, 
And we have a tradition in New Books in Islamic Studies that our first question is biographical, where we ask our authors about their journeys, uh, how they became interested in the study of Islam or Muslim societies, and how they uh, became interested in the particular project uh, about which we speak. So I will uh, present that question to you. Uh, could you uh, share a bit about your background and uh, how you became interested in Islam and Muslim societies and how you came to write this uh, particular book? Sure. Um, let me just start by saying it's a pleasure to be on the program. And thank you so much for that uh, lovely praise um, on, on the book. Much appreciated. Um, well, I kind of early on in life um, had decided that I was either going to be a film star or I was going to be a historian. Uh-huh. And it dawned on me um, a little later that a film star thing wasn't actually going to happen. So I should concentrate on academia. And that's the route I took for my PhD. Uh-huh. In fact, the, the reason I wanted to be a, a historian at a young age was um, I grew up in the context of 1984, the anti-Sikh riots mm-hmm. and the Khalistan movement. And it was my ambition to write a book about the Khalistan movement. And so I started reading a lot extensively and I got very interested in reading about um, mm-hmm. South Asian history. But that was, that was when I was much younger. When I, when I went, fast forward many years later, uh-huh. I went to do my PhD and um, when, I was, when I was embarking on the PhD process, I was um, very interested in examining religious polemics in South Asia, the shaping of religious identities in the colonial period itself, census reports, enumeration processes, but also the content of, of um, religious polemics itself. And I was particularly drawn towards uh, debates among modern Muslim intellectuals. And I still remember that um, when I applied to do my PhD, my aim was to study political, Islamic political thought uh, in South Asia broadly. And in fact, my PhD dissertation proposal was entitled The Evolution of Islamic Political Thought in Late 19th and Early 20th Century South Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, very shortly after embarking on the PhD process, I realized how immature my use of the word evolution was. So that dropped off. And slowly but surely, my, um, my supervisors started nudging me to focus on one particular thinker rather than looking at a broad array of um, individuals. I was a little hesitant about that for fear of um, the book other to rather the dissertation becoming a biographical project on uh, on a figure, but it it dawned on me that Muhammad Iqbal presented a a very interesting, controversial and interesting figure who could be used to piece together a history of the period itself because he was involved in a number of debates with Muslim inter- other intellectuals of his time period or his contemporaries. And so it was that element of his debating, his criticizing others and others criticizing him that attracted me to focus um, on him uh, as, as the focus of the dissertation and, and subsequently the book itself. But there was another aspect to, to Muhammad Iqbal as well, which was the afterlife of Muhammad Iqbal rather than then, um, then what he actually uh, what I mean by afterlife is 
the emergence of the figure of Muhammad Iqbal in post-colonial South Asia as compared to what Iqbal was in itself. So this this was the fascinating issues that led me to, to focus on him. But I, I should also admit that, as you can probably tell from my name itself, there is a parallel personal um, story as well that, that leads to Muhammad Iqbal. Uh-huh. My grandfather was um, was very attracted um, by Muhammad Iqbal's poetry. And in the 1920s, he managed to actually meet Muhammad Iqbal once in the government college Lahore. And so fascinated was he by Muhammad Iqbal that um, he, um, he would always remember that incident in that meeting. Many decades later when I was born and in the tradition of um, Orthodox Sikh families, um, I was as a baby brought as an infant brought to the Gurdwara and um, I was my parents decided to name me after the first um, the first letter that, that um, the bully text was open to and that came out to be an ED which uh, is an equivalent of a leaf um, in Gurmukhi and in between the debates between my parents about whether I was going to be Inderpal <laughs> Elvin Jeet uh, my grandfather intervened and declared I was going to be Iqbal uh-huh. And ever since then, I, I grew up hearing about this figure of Muhammad Iqbal. I, I must admit, I didn't take much interest in, in Muhammad Iqbal as a young kid. Um, but there was this, this, this shadow of this, this figure that I, when I... So I guess in a way, there's this parallel narrative that, that brought me to study Muhammad Iqbal. Wow. Um, Terrific. Uh, so, uh, as a way to begin the conversation about the book, uh, as you show... Uh, in the book that Muhammad Iqbal is an avidly uh, contested figure uh, with competing nationalist historiographies that present him either as the father of Pakistan or a patriot of India. Uh, what do you find problematic in these neat nationalist historiographies and how does your book uh, bring these nationalist historiographies into question? Well, the afterlife of, of Muhammad Iqbal is an amazing topic of study in itself. It's a dissertation topic just waiting to be done as well. Um, as, as you rightly note, um, the nationalist projections of, of um, Muhammad Iqbal uh, in Pakistan have a life of their own and, and selective portrayals of, of Muhammad Iqbal in India as well. Now, it's quite interesting if I may just diverge a little bit here. If you compare uh, Muhammad Iqbal to Chaudhry Rahmat Ali, who's actually the person who coined the name of Pakistan, He's not remembered in Pakistan um, as, as one of the founding fathers. He's not commemorated in the way that Muhammad Iqbal is. And so somehow the Iqbal is caught on in this national histo- nationalist historiography. Um, and in fact, if, if you just, uh, in, in Pakistan, as, as, as you would know, the, he's celebrated as a founding father, the poet philosopher of the demand for Pakistan. And this links to Iqbal's use of the term nation to describe Muslims. And it's an assumption that when we use the term nation, we refer to a territorially marked political community. And in this book, I argue that, um, that that's not the best way to approach Muhammad Iqbal's, Iqbal's thought. But just to put perspective, in, in India itself, Muhammad Iqbal is still celebrated and in some cases abused as well for being um, the founding father, one of the founding fathers of Pakistan. His, his, uh, his poem, um, uh, Tarane Hind, which is uh, popularly known as Sahih Jahan Se Achai Hindustan Hamara, 
is still one of the most popular patriotic songs in India. Um, in fact, it's been adopted by the Indian Armed Forces um, for its quick march as well. Both India and Pakistan um, have um, competed over commemorating um, figures like Bal. In fact, on the cover of my book, I actually had the good fortune of having permission from the Pakistani Postal um, Department to actually reproduce a stamp um, from Pakistan, uh, which was issued in 1990 to commemorate the Lahore Resolution, which was passed in 1940. Um, the Lahore Resolution being seen as one of the founding uh, moments in which uh, the Muslim League starts to move towards a demand for Pakistan. Uh, it's a controversial topic in itself. However, what's fascinating about this stamp, this postage stamp, is that Muhammad Iqbal died in 1938, but he's projected as actually being part of this event in 1940 in, its, in itself. Um, why is this the case? It's Like I say, it's because of the, his use of the term nation, but it's also a, a historiographical strand in South Asian history, which divides Muslim intellectuals into nationalist figures and separatist figures. And perhaps we can talk more about it um, sure. if you like to um, sure. later. Sure. Um, in, in, in my book, what I do is I try to step away from some such spurious um, characterizations and move away from the afterlife of Iqbal to actually contextualize him firmly within the time period and intellectual milieu in which he lived. So I step away from, from the issue of partition and I even step away from constitutional arguments that happened post his death. So the Lahore Resolution, etc. And that was done deliberately. We're trying to locate him in, in terms of constitutional arguments that were occurring when he lived. Um, and in trying to examine his social-political discourse critically, I, I, I look at um, what did the term, or I question what the term nation meant in Iqbal's usage. And in relation to that, what were the um, Islamic or Urdu terms that he used, be they millet or qom or ummah? And I try and kind of piece together what this meant to Muhammad Iqbal himself. Um, I also um, should add that um, I try and question this historiographical approach, which presumes that South, that I should say not only South Asian intellectuals, but intellectuals um, in the non-West are incapable of imagining their own political communities itself, i.e. when they use the term nation, what do they actually mean? I, I kind of try and take that seriously. And so that's how I approach um, my breaking away from the mold of the nationalist historiographies. Okay, let me continue this uh, thread of conversation by uh, asking you a, a broad uh, question, which is, could you Tell us a bit about the chief conceptual concerns. You've already begun to talk about them, but if you could further elaborate on the chief conceptual concerns of your book, and what are some of the other problems and tendencies in the existing scholarly literature on either Iqbal or on modern South Asian Islam uh, that your book seeks to redress and, and uh, correct? Hmm. Um, can I take that question in two parts? Sure. In first the um, perhaps the tendencies in current historiography with regards to Muslim and Muslims and politics in in pre-partition South Asia. Well, as I as I as I noted earlier, um, Muslim intellectuals and statesmen statesmen are generally divided into the nationalist camp or the separatist camp. 
And this results in um, spurious uh, attempts to locate spurious breaks in their, in their sociopolitical thought and actions. For instance, Muhammad Iqbal is, is generally described as having been an Indian nationalist till 1905 and becoming a Muslim separatist post-1905. This is a trend not limited to Iqbal himself. Um, a number of Muslim intellectuals uh, are studied in such a way. So if you look at Sayyid Khan, for instance, he's supposed to have been a Muslim national, uh, sorry, an Indian nationalist till 1885. And after 1885, which marked the um, formation of the Congress party, to have transformed or metamorphosized into a Muslim separatist itself. This is one of the major problems. And it's, it's still, a, these are still categories that, that are being used as well. But related to that or, or emerging from that is, is the view that somehow or other the, the political thought or Islamic political discourse of a number of such figures had evolved in a linear fashion, i.e. you can trace a development from Sayyid Ahmed Khan's um, thoughts on Islam and politics to the thought of Muhammad Iqbal and subsequently to Jinnah and uh, hence the formation of, um, of Pakistan itself. So this homogenization of, of Islamic discourse and Muslim political thought is a big issue which, um, which is being challenged as well now. Related to that is the assumption that there is a normative Islamic political tradition which um, separatist Muslims had drawn upon. And so that's one of the things I, I try and um, peel away at um, in this book itself. With regards to Islam, the study of Islam in South Asia, there's still, a, a, and this is perhaps something wide, wide, that relates to wider studies about Islam itself, Islam in South Asia is still sometimes seen as being on the periphery of the Muslim world, that it's receiving influences from other parts of the Muslim world. And in, in this book, one of the things I try and, try and highlight is a number of figures like Muhammad Iqbal um, are very conscious of the fact that South Asia has the largest body of Muslims, but also that given their direct interaction with the West in in the context of the colonization of India and the exposure to Western education institutions, they were well-placed to provide a modern interpretation of Islam or an Islamic response to modernity, which could be of benefit to the wider Muslim world as well. So that's another way I try and, I try and approach um, uh, another conceptual issue that I try and raise in, in this book. And lastly, there is... There's still this um, this um, use of of categories that that I found to be uncomfortable, i.e., um, traditionalist, modernist, or authenticist. These are terms that continue to be used to describe the thought of Muslim intellectuals. And in this book, I try and problematize all three categories and try and ask or try and open up a space to see what sources Muslim intellectuals are drawing from but also what they meant when they used specific Islamic terminology. So you convincingly show in the first chapter of your book uh, that the late 19th and early 20th century 
the context in which Iqbal uh, was writing was a moment of tremendous intellectual fermentation uh, among South Asian Muslim scholars on the question of nationalism and the intersection of religion and politics. Uh, can you describe uh, the intellectual landscape or context uh, in which Iqbal articulated his political thought? And what were some of the key issues which were being debated and contested uh, by Muslim scholars uh, during this moment? <clears throat> the late 19th and early 20th century was an immensely vibrant period, aided by the rise of or the burgeoning of printing presses as well, the adoption of printing presses at a large scale. Among the issues being debated by Muslim intellectuals were the, obviously the causes for Muslim decline and the utility of adopting Western institutions or facets of Western civilization as well. One of the things I try and I try and um, I try and engage with is the fact that modernity, with its rationalism, institutions, imperialism, and ideologies, brought into relief many new questions, which forced the Muslim intelligentsia to reevaluate Islamic ideas and institutions. Now, apart from the the social political context of disempowerment itself. Muslim intellectuals were also forced to respond to Orientalist writings about Islam itself, which were not too charitable in their representations of Islam. Figures like Muhammad Iqbal, Chirag Ali, Sayyid Khan, um, all leading figures um, uh, who represent strands of modern Islamic thought in South Asia, acknowledged that their work were direct responses to such um, polemical writings or colonial critiques as well. Um, and with the rise of or the or the adoption of printing presses, you also find what can be described as a fragmentation of religious authority, where a number of figures who were not trained in Islamic um, traditional sciences were writing about Islam, and this I, I would argue leads to maybe a, a, a what could be described as a very vibrant period of pamphlet wars, in which. Muslim intellectuals are trying to provide solutions um, to contemporary social political problems itself. Now, at a at a at a level of, of uh, debates about um, Islam and the role of Islam in these institutions, one of the first debates that that occurs, or one of the major debates that occurs in this period, is clearly about whether South Asia remains a Darul Islam or has it been transformed into Darul Darul Hub, and this has implications for the nationalist movement as well. Debates were also raging about the importance or the utility of the Khilafat as, um, as an, uh, the Caliph as an institution and the importance of Sharia um, in a modern state itself. Now, in terms of politics, what we find is if we, if we examine um, pamphlets and journals from this time period, it's... It, it, give us an insight into a fascinating period in which a lot of Western political uh, writings are being translated and circulated as well. If Just to give you an example, if we, if we look at the pages of the Urdu um, newspaper, Urdu magazine, Pagram, we find that there are numerous articles on the French Revolution, um, on the concept of democracy, translations of Adam Smith's writings, John Stuart Mill's writings, and of other figures like Locke, John Locke as well. So this is a period in which we find uh, debates about 
the utility of adopting Western institutions, debates about um, the utility of retaining Islamic institutions, all in the process of writings, all, all, in, the, all in the light of a number of writings about what Islam is, but also about Western political ideas and institutions themselves as well. And what we find is this gives rise to a, a fascinating debate about what sources Muslims can look back to in, this, in trying to answer or in trying to come to a solution to these debates themselves. Um, whether you could look to the Hadith, whether you could look to the Sharia, whether you could look to, or do you only look to the, the Quran itself? And this opened up a wider debate about the authenticity of Islamic sources itself. So in a nutshell, it was an extremely vibrant period. Right. So in uh, chapter three, uh, you conduct a fascinating analysis of Iqbal as an intellectual and as a poet. And you show that his thought cannot be reduced to binaries uh, such as traditionalist, modernist, and so on. Something that you just mentioned that you're uncomfortable with these, uh, with these binaries. And you also argue that Iqbal's relationship to modernism was much more complicated than what the category modernist would suggest, uh, which I found very fascinating and, and very informative. So could you talk a bit more about Iqbal's conception of uh, colonial modernity and how that differed uh, from other modernists uh, of his era? Sure. Um, Iqbal is often described as a modernist intellectual. And, and one of the things I had to grapple with as I was working on the dissertation and, and the book itself was how do I locate Iqbal in the spectrum of, of Islamic thought in modern South Asia? And I, the approach I took was to, was to one, look at Iqbal's critiques of other modernists, but also looking to look at how he described himself as well. And there's an interesting incident, uh, um, a speech he gave at uh, Aligarh, um, which is which is celebrated as one of the leading modernist um, Muslim modernist institutions in South Asia, um, and when he was addressing the students, he described his message as such. He said, "Mera payam aur hai." Um, the message I bring is different, and he was making direct reference to both the traditionalist, who he um, equated with the ulama, and the modernist who he equated with figures such as Sayyid Khan, who called for a rationalist interpretation of Islam in light of the post-enlightenment conceptions of religion. Well, he critiqued the traditionalists for being unable to draw from modern thought or draw inspiration from modern thought. And he critiqued the modernists for being intellectually captive to the West. And this is, this is, this, this is how I kind of, uh, this is the opening point where I kind of tried to use to, to examine where he fits in in this spectrum of thought. And what, what, I, what, I, what I argue in, in the book is that if we examine his critiques of modernist figures, we find that Iqbal, in a sense, anticipated later third worldies critiques of colonialism, which saw colonialism as a totalitarian exercise of power, one that extended into the realms of culture and ideology itself. And what we find is that drawing from such an interpretation of, of colonialism itself, he critiques his fellow modernists for, for, their, for their intellectual thought, 
for their educational endeavors, but also for their interpretations of Islam itself. And what I mean by this is that his critique of, of his contemporaries extends, or modernist contemporaries, extends to the realm of art, education, intellectual thought, and also into the realm of interpretations of, of Islam itself. And with regards to the interpretation of Islam, he's particularly um, critical of those who, like Sayyid Khan, who seek to interpret Islam in the light of post-enlightenment conceptions of religion itself. So in, in some, what, what I try and argue is that for Baal, like other South Asian intellectuals of his time period, including Rabindranath Tagore, ideas were themselves sources of powers, sources of power, control and domination. And what we find is that the interesting quotations in his poetry and in his prose where he describes um, modern ideologies such as nationalism, capitalism, as weapons and narcotics, etc. And this leads me, this led to my, my critique of, my, sorry, my argument that Iqbal shouldn't, instead of viewing him as a modernist, one should engage with his critique of his modernist colleagues as well. And this is a trend we find in a lot of his poetry, where he describes modernist figures as being captured by the visions of the West or, the, or imprisoned by the grandeurs of the West itself. And he's, he calls on Muslims of South Asia to break that mold or break that mold of viewing the West as a source of inspiration in itself. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to argue that uh, Iqbal's work should be seen as a return to, to an authentic Islam or that Iqbal is an authenticist in any sense because one of the things I, I highlight is that um, Muhammad Iqbal's interpretation of Islam is in part um, inspired by the works of Nietzsche itself. And interestingly, he's drawing from Nietzsche's writings to critique modernist figures who seek to adopt ideologies from the West itself. Now, among the most productive aspects of this book is uh, the way that you uh, talked about Iqbal's reconstruction of Islam, his, the comprehensiveness with which he uh, tried to rethink Islam, and uh, you do it with great philosophical dexterity and in a very multi-layered and philosophically enriching analysis, you show ways in which uh, Iqbal went about rethinking Islam. And you just touched on the question of authenticity. Uh, you do discuss ways in which Iqbal imagined or understood the idea of uh, religious authenticity and uh, the way in which he was very critical of not only other Muslims but also certain non-Muslim groups for what he considered uh, to be heretical or that did not fit into his notion of what uh, religious authenticity represents. So could you uh, talk a bit about his notion of what he might have considered to be uh, uh, his notion of religious authenticity and uh, his understanding of heresy uh, in relation to that? Sure. I, I must say, I like the way you termed that question, the, the Iqbal's notion of authenticity. Because, um, because the use of authenticity as a term to describe Iqbal is, is very problematic itself, or describe, uh, and I would argue, the works of uh, Muslim figures in, in general. Because, <coughs> sorry, As as I highlighted, that 
while he critiqued modernist interpretations, one should not be lured into, into approaching his views as a return to an authentic Islam. And apart from figures like Nietzsche, he was also drawing from the works of Marx um, and Engels, um, especially their critiques of Christianity to, to, to aid his interpretation of Islam itself. And what we find with Muhammad Iqbal is that when it comes to when it comes to defining the social, legal, or political um, institutions of Islam itself, he calls for constant interpretation. He's not so in a way to he doesn't speak in terms of a fixed code of Islam or a fixed legalistic structure of Islam itself. So this is this complicates the idea of authenticity being attached to to figures like him, etc. Having said that, he does use the term Sacha Islam or True Islam in describing his own interpretations. And he critiques what he finds, what he describes as, as inauthentic interpretations. So that's why I like the way you phrase that, um, the question in terms of Iqbal's notions of, um, of authenticity itself. Now, so what was his, his, his notion of um, the authentic Islam? Um, his notion of an authentic Islam broadly was one that was an empowering ethic or an empowering message and was a social nizam or a complete system itself. One way to kind of get at what his views about true Islam were was to look at what he described as inauthentic Islam. And here, two strands stand out. The first is the strand that interpreted Islam in terms of a dichotomy between the public and the private, i.e. what I described earlier as the post-enlightenment conceptions of religion itself. The second strand of Islam, which he sees as inauthentic, are schools of Sufism, which prize fana or baka, or loosely translated as, as annihilation. Now, while the former... Um, was described, or the, rather, let me rephrase that. While the tendency to interpret Islam in light of the public-private dichotomy was rejected by Muhammad Iqbal as being an inauthentic presentation of Islam by modernist figures who were entrapped by ideologies and systems of the West, the the concept of Sufism, which stressed um, the merger of the individual into, into the one or the annihilation of fana or baka of the individual, were described as the works of Nietzschean ascetic priests in itself. So these were two strands which he was, he was very critical of. And his interpretation of Islam was in response to such, or his interpretation of authentic Islam was in response to such such presentations of Islam. But on the issue of heresy, this was a very interesting issue because Iqbal went to great extents or great lengths to argue that Islam was a religion in which it was very difficult to be a heretic. Now, Iqbal said that there were only two markers, two or two, two, two markers that uh, you had to cross before you were a heretic. The first was you had to reject Tawheed or the unity of God or Allah and the second being Risalat or the finality of the Prophet. These were the only two uh, bounds that he used in his de definition of Islam. Now, 
I I would I would suggest that um, this was in part um, in reaction to the fact that he was trying to make a space for for himself and others such as him to interpret Islam, but also given the social political context in which enumeration and numbers given the um, the implementation or the introduction of some forms of democracy democratic government in um, in South Asia, numbers became important, and such. So, my, I would suggest that his def, his very broad definition of Islam should also be seen in in terms of the political realities of the time as well. However, despite his definition of of um, of Islam as a religion, in which is very difficult to be a heretic or to 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 be cast aside for heresy, he does have a controversial um, perspective on the Ahmadiyyas itself. And, and it's a very interesting, his views on the Ahmadiyyas are, are extremely interesting in themselves, partly because he was associated with a number of, of Ahmadiyya himself. Um, and where he grew up, Sialkot was an area in which you had um, uh, you had an important presence of, of the Ahmadiyya community. So how do we how do we um, how do we piece together Iqbal's views about or the rejection of the Ahmadiyya with in, in light of his uh, presentation of Islam as this broad religion? Now, I argue that apart from any theological differences itself, Iqbal's critique of the Ahmadiyya or his rejection of the Ahmadiyya as being un-Islamic should be seen in the light of his fear or his rejection of the view, or rather, let me rephrase that, should be understood in light of the fact that he felt that the Ahmadiyya fell beyond the fold of Islam because of their rejection of Risalat, because they expected a constant, um, or rather they spoke about constant expectations of, of, of a prophet. Now, it should be noted here that when Iqbal critiques the Ahmadiyya, He's particularly focusing on the Qadiani branch of the Ahmadiyya rather than the Lahori branch of the Ahmadiyya itself. Now, what, why, why is the issue of Rizalat um, of such importance to Iqbal? Not, I, what I argue is that it's not just about the definition of Islam, but it's also about the empowering ethic of Islam. For, in Iqbal's interpretation or presentation of authentic or true Islam, there is an emphasis on the finality of the Prophet because he argues that Islam is a religion which, which prizes and accepts the importance of individuality and the need for the individual to struggle and achieve um, personal development. And this was linked to the issue of finality because if the individual was in constant expectations of a Prophet uh, for guidance, that wouldn't lead to the development of the individual or, or the term he uses um, in his work, which is Khudi itself. So what I'm trying to suggest is that his views on the Ahmadiyya with regards to issues of heresy should not just be seen from a theological perspective, but also as an issue that has socio-political implications. Because in his description of the Ahmadiyya, we find a repeated suggestion that the Ahmadiyya need to be studied in not just as a specific group, but in a longer trajectory of Muslim movements and religious leaders who have sought to reconcile Muslims to a new socio-political environment of disempowerment and the issue of the stress on a, on a need for renewal of prophethood being a case 
in point itself. So that's how I approach this uh, this issue of the Ahmadiyya and heresy. Now, one of the categories uh, that you analyze uh, in some depth and, and, and do so uh, uh, with a fascinating discussion uh, is the category of khudi or the self or the individual or the ego and you show the centrality of that concept to Iqbal's thought. Uh, so what is the role and significance of this concept, a khudi, to Iqbal's political thought and program? The concept of khudi is central, I would, I would argue, is central to his, construct, um, his philosophical construction and to his sociopolitical discourse as well. The khudi as described by Iqbal uh, as translated into English by Iqbal would be the self, the individual, or the ego. And the khudi was, was, was um, as I mentioned earlier, um, the individual or the khudi was to strive for his development and self-affirmation continuously. And this is where he differentiates himself from Sufi schools, certain Sufi schools of thought that emphasize Baka and uh, Fana, when he argues that the self or the khudi never effaces itself or he never negates itself, even in the presence of God. Now, what we find is that the khudi um, is the basis for the projection of Islam as a religion that empowered um, the individual and society as well. What he does is he contrasts um, Islam with Buddhism and Christianity. In his argument, Buddhism negates the individual, thus giving rise to inaction. Whereas Christianity, in Iqbal's argument, recognizes the individual but finds the individual or describes the individual as being too weak to free himself, hence linking him to the need for a savior. Now, this is this is this then leads to the leads to understanding that Khudi actually is central to his development of this idea of the empowering ethic of Islam. Itself. Now, I, I should also point out that Khudi in Iqbal's work is counterbalanced with the concept of Bekhudi or the force that brings the individual in line with the social ego. Now, in Sufi usages of the term Bekhudi, um, uh, in Sufi usages, Sufi usages, the term Bekhudi is often described as a process of losing awareness of one's self. However, in Iqbal's use, usage of the term, Bekhudi does not imply the negation of the Khudi. In fact, he argues that it is only as a member of society can the individual truly develop um, and be empowered itself. I hope that puts perspective to... Absolutely. Uh, in chapter 4... Uh, you present an enormously interesting case study uh, of an intra-Muslim debate uh, between two major Muslim scholars in colonial India, uh, Muhammad Iqbal and Hossein Ahmad Madani, uh, on the relationship between Islam and nationalism. Uh, and I, I found this uh, to be very instructive of the larger conceptual stakes uh, of your book also. But uh, the question that I wanted to ask you was, what was at stake uh, in this debate between uh, Madani and Iqbal? And how precisely did Iqbal assemble his argument for the incompatibility of Islam and nationalism? 
Now I should I should uh, highlight that when I use when I when I approach nationalism in this book, I don't approach it. Uh, let me rephrase that: if when I approach nationalism and the institution of nation state, I don't approach them merely as um, as systems of legal norms or the embodiment of sovereign authority. I, I approach the nation state as a socio cultural phenomena, an expression of modernity itself. So. In the process of debating about the adaptability of Islam and and nationalism, we're getting an insight to the interactions with, of Muslim intellectuals with modernity itself. And and the debate you refer to is a debate between Maulana um, Hussein Ahmed Madni of the Dioban school um, and Muhammad Iqbal. And generally, if I could just go back to an earlier question that you had asked, this debate is portrayed as one between a separatist and a nationalist, so Muhammad Iqbal being the separatist and um, Madni being um, the nationalist um, Muslim figure. Now, in fact, this was a debate about interpretations of Islam and its ability to adapt to modern political institutions and ideologies. Of course, um, Iqbal asserts that because Islam is a social, a complete, uh, a social nizam or a complete system itself, an adaptation of nation, to nationalism would, would fundamentally change the structure of Islam. Whereas Madni would argue that um, there was nothing in Islam that hindered it from accepting modern political institutions. Now, apart, apart, from, apart from a debate about the nature of, of Islam itself, this was also a debate over Islamic terminology. Specifically, it was a debate over which term or which Islamic term could be used to describe political community. And the three terms that they, they, they argued over were Qom, Millat and Ummah. Now, Iqbal would argue that the, the authentic Islamic term to be used for political category is Millat, whereas Madni would argue that Millat was a specifically religious category and could not be used for political categories. And instead, Madni argued for the use of the term Qom. Now, Qom um, is, a, is a category or it's a term that's used for various social categories, be it um, uh, territory-bounded communities, race, um, ethnic communities, and it's also been used for caste communities as well. Whereas Millat is a category that's been used specifically in reference to religion as it is related to a prophet. Um, <clears throat> now, this what what fascinates me about about this debate over the term to be used to describe political community, apart from the implication that it has on on um, nationalism itself, is the fact that um, in in using the term "com," Madni is essentially looking for precedence for the nation state in the early Islamic state itself and he's arguing for for the view that the term qom um, in Islam has been used to refer to many um, political categories based on ethnic group or, or territorial community as well but given that in the modern period the territorially defined state is the most important political category 
the Islamic sanctioned political category would be the nation state. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So there's there's what I try and what I'm trying to argue is that there's what's at stake is essentially the a debate about the nature of Islam, but also about Islamic political categories themselves. And in the course of this debate, both Iqbal and Madni are actually trying to define polit- Islamic political categories. So you have an emergence of a modern Islamic political language itself. So as a final question on, on this uh, book, uh, I was wondering if you would allow me to ask you uh, and to engage you on the question of how would you describe the politics and the political stakes of, of this particular book? Uh, and as a way to rephrase it, uh, what resources, conceptual or otherwise, do you think Iqbal's thought might provide us today uh, in bringing into question a territorially bound idea of the nation state that seems to dominate political discourse and imaginaries today? Uh, in other words, how do you think we can engage with Iqbal today in rethinking uh, the uh, horizon of the political, so to say, uh, through engagement with your book? Well, I would love to hear what a reviewer has to say about that, actually. <laughs> but I would, I would, I would just um, sum it up in saying that um, uh, I would, I would make a case for, I would make a case that uh, an examination of the thought of figures such as Muhammad Iqbal, and and I would, I would suggest going further and and that we shouldn't study Iqbal. I, in isolation from the debates he was having with, with other figures as well. And, and if we examine Iqbal and the debates he was having, we perhaps can start to problematize the assumption that non-Western intellectuals blindly accepted modular forms of nationalism from the West. And related to this, we could perhaps open up a space for an understanding of alternative political structures. Um, Given the discourse, or, and I, if I push it further, given the contemporary discourse on minority persecutions and failed states that that uh, that we we are uh, exposed to in the media as well, but I would say I would like to add further that perhaps an examination of of the work of figures like Muhammad Iqbal would also allow us to engage more critically with Islamist strands of thought. And what I mean by this is that perhaps it's time to study Islamist strands of thought as, as post-colonial responses to disempowerment. And this is where I come back to linking Iqbal's interpretation of Islam itself with his anticipation of third worldist critiques of colonialism. I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so as we are drawing to a, a close uh, in our program, uh, uh, Iqbal, uh, I was wondering if you could share with us what you're working on these days. What are some of the projects we can uh, have the pleasure of learning from and reading from you uh, in the coming few months or years? <laughs> well, I have been enjoying myself working on various projects. Um, as one particularly that I enjoyed particularly was uh, writing about Pakistani Punjabi films gave me an excuse to watch films and, and have a legitimate reason to do so as well. 
Um, but um, I, I, I've embarked, I'm on the early stages of um, two wider projects. And one is a book um, on Islamic, the history of Islamic political thought in modern South Asia. Um, it's, it's planned to be a, a general introduction to uh, various strands of Islamic thought, ranging from the late 19th century to um, contemporary intra-Islamic contestations in South Asia. So that's the that's the first uh, project which I which I'm embarking on. The second is a project that I've I've been um, it's been on the back burner for some time, but I finally managed to um, start work on it. And this is a study of the Mirasi caste, um, a caste of genealogies, genealogists and balladeers and bards um, in uh, Punjab. And I'm 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 trying to investigate. How this group that um, sang genealogies, sang religious songs, but also sang kissas, or narrated kissas, um, came to be relegated um, in both in terms of their socio-economic importance, but also their caste standing in the early 20th century. And the two questions that I seek to ask are the impact, firstly, the impact of print technology and the development of religious reformist movements on the importance or the socio-economic roles of the Mirasis in Punjab. And secondly, how did the Mirasis view themselves? What did they view? What did they, well, how did they conceive of their role in imparting um, kissas and in, in singing, etc.? And I'm particularly here trying to investigate the idea um, of history, folk songs, and the inculcation of jasba in the audience itself. So this is, this is a new uh, thing that I'm very excited about now. The Political Philosophy of Muhammad Iqbal, Islam and Nationalism in Late Colonial India by Iqbal Singh Sevilla, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. Uh, thank you so much, Iqbal, for your time. It was an absolute pleasure reading your book and uh, chatting with you about it. I really learned a lot uh, from your book and from this conversation. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It, it was a pleasure, Shirley, and I hope uh, I didn't ramble too much. That was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Iqbal. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Iqbal Sevilla. Hope you enjoyed it. Please also join us next time for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care and be well. Thank you.